The Capital Weekly Podcast is a production of Open California and is sponsored by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Hello, welcome to a special episode of the Capital Weekly Podcast. Today's episode was recorded live Thursday, March 4th at a Zoom event looking at the future of work. This was a panel discussion hosted by Capital Weekly, and it featured Rob Lapsley of the California Business Roundtable, Lenny Mendonca of McKinsey & Company, Caitlin Vega of Union Main Strategies, and Evan White of the California Policy Lab, and was moderated by the one and only Erica Smith of the Los Angeles Times. I hope you enjoy it. I think it was a good event. And our final event in this series will be held next week, Thursday, March 11th, uh, with Assemblywoman Lorena Gonzalez. That will be noon to 1 p.m. You can go to the Capital Weekly website and look up our events page and find out how to go there. It's free. Please join us. And with that, I'm going to turn you over to uh, myself introducing the panel uh, yesterday. Thanks so much. Today's panel is going to be the big picture, future of work. And we've been hosting these panels for the last few weeks and looking at specific topics. This is sort of everything, the big grab bag, and will be the final panel discussion of the series. Next week, we will have uh, Assemblywoman Lorena Gonzalez to discuss AB5, Prop 22, uh, labor politics, and uh, maybe she'll even talk about her uh, efforts to organize uh, a union for staffers of the Capitol, but she'll be covering whatever comes to mind there. So we invite you to join us for that. Uh, thank you so much to our panelists and to our moderator, Erica Smith of the Los Angeles Times. Thank you for tuning in. And thanks especially to our sponsors. Capital Weekly is published by a 501c3 nonprofit. We could not uh, offer these sorts of programs if we did not have sponsors. And thanks first and foremost to the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. They are our presenting sponsor, been with us since the minute we started uh, about 10 years ago. And also sponsoring our events programming are the uh, Capital Advocacy, Western States Petroleum Association, KP Public Affairs, Perry Communications, California Building Industry Association, the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California, and the California Professional Firefighters. And uh, again, thank you for tuning in. If you have any questions, I invite you to put those in our Q&A function. We will get to those toward the end of the program. Uh, but uh, you know, feel free to ask as they come along. So with that, I'm gonna turn you over to our moderator, Erica Smith. Erica has moderated events for us before. She did a great job on our, at our housing program Gosh, it must have been about three or four years ago when she was still with Sacramento Bee. She is currently with the Los Angeles Times, has been there since 2018. She is a native of Cleveland, and uh, the nerd in me has to note that that's where uh, Superman originated. And so I do see a little bit of Clark Kent in Eric Smith. I think it could be the glasses, could be a little more. I'll leave that up to you. But uh, with that, I'm going to turn this over to Erica. Thanks again to all our panelists, and thanks to you for watching. So I'm going to get out of here and turn this over to our panelists. Thanks much. Thanks, Tim. That's the first time I will say that um, I've ever heard uh, a reference from me in Superman, but that's hilarious. But um, in any case, uh, thank you everyone for joining us this, uh, I guess, afternoon now. I wanna introduce our panelists. Um, first, we have Rob Lapsley, who's the president of the California Business Roundtable and the former vice president and state political director for Cal Chamber. We have Caitlin Vega, who spent 16 years with the California Labor Federation and is the founding, uh, founded, founder of the lobbying firm Union Made, which works with a number of unions, including Teamsters, Unite Here, Transport Workers, Classified School Employees, and ASME. We have Evan White, who is the executive director of the California Policy Lab at UC Berkeley. Uh, prior to that, he served as a senior advisor to Richard Cordway, and who was the first, and the first director of the California Financial Protection Bureau. And finally, we have Men Lenny Mendoza, who is the, a former chief economic and business advisor to Governor Gavin Newsom, a senior partner emeritus with um, McKinsey and Company, and a guest lecturer on inequality at Stanford. And also something I did not know until somehow yesterday, a founder of Half Moon Brewing Company. So welcome our panelists. Um, so I'm gonna jump right in. So for the third year in a row, California has seen a decline in population with people moving out of the state, fewer babies being born, and unfortunately a number of people who've died of COVID uh, during the pandemic. Um, we've seen some, also seen some high profile companies, mostly tech companies move out 
and say they're leaving, usually with the list of grievances in their wake, including uh, high taxes and regulations. Um, this one's to everyone, but I'd like to end uh, this, this round of questioning with Evan. Um, is this something we should be worried about? Is this a historical blip in California's history or is this some, the start of something bigger? I don't know who wants to start, Rob, maybe you? Good morning, <clears throat> excuse me, good morning. So when we get into this topic today, we have an hour, it's a very dynamic issue. So obviously a variety of opinions, a variety of data, most importantly, the, the dynamics as we see them right now from a business community perspective are, you know, we're, we're at a key point. I won't say a tipping point because we don't know that yet from the data. I won't say a pivotal point. We don't know that yet from the data. Nobody does. I want to be clear about that. But what we see, you know, are, are, and what we try and track are trends. And with that, you know, we're, we're going to see a fundamental shift coming out of the pandemic of what work looks like for California companies. And that starts with telecommuting. What does that mean? Uh, are workers going to be connected to California companies, but working out of state? Uh, what does that mean for you know, housing? What does that mean for commuting? What does that mean for real estate? There's so many different impacts. Uh, we have seen companies, just to start the discussion this morning, obviously that are fundamentally changing their approach to California. Some companies are drawing down their workforces, but they stay here. Some companies are changing how their workforces are working. So telecommuting has to be at the forefront of the discussion. Uh, yes, some companies are leaving, whether they, again, that's a tipping point remains to be seen and is going to remain to be a hot topic of discussion. But my last uh, comment this morning to start is that what we want in the discussion with the policymakers of California is how we stay at the forefront of these changes to have policies that will accommodate changes, incentivize, you know, obviously the workforce to ensure they stay here or attract a workforce here for, for companies to either start or grow. And Right now, obviously, we have a lot of work to do to be able to stay at the forefront and talk about what those policy changes need to be to continue to attract growth uh, to, or uh, employees to the state. So that's what we'd like to expound on a little bit as we go through the, through the hour here. Great. Thank you. Um, I don't know who wants to go next. Maybe Caitlin, you? Sure, thank you. And thank you for the opportunity to be here today. Um, I, I think I, I agree with some of that and I have some really different responses to some of it. I think that um, California pre-COVID was already facing some of the highest levels of inequality um, that we have ever seen. Um, we have too many low wage jobs um, and not enough jobs that allow uh, workers to make ends meet and provide for their families. Um, what we saw with the COVID pandemic was really the, um, the worsening uh, of inequality in every way. It, there's this way that this pandemic, I feel like, exploited every vulnerability, took advantage of all of the inequality so that workers who had very few options pre-COVID were in a position where they had to keep returning to work workplaces where they were not safe and where in many cases they contracted COVID, brought it home to their families. I think we cannot overstate the devastation of the working class through this past year. And so as we try to assess what that means long term, I think we really need to center it on, um, you know, how communities of color, how working people um, have really been um, impacted by this pandemic, whether it's through increased unemployment, whether it's through um, illness, death rates, and also the long-term impacts, I think, for you know, communities where the death rates were very high, um, there are going to be um, impacts for years to come. We know COVID has health impacts um, that are long-term for many people, but I think that we should expect to see some societal impacts um, from just the, the degree of severity that this virus um, had on specific communities. So as we try to evaluate what happened, the, the kind of easy narrative I see as, as a labor person is, you know, we know the capital gains tax 
uh, hit record highs. We know that the wealthy um, have done well through this pandemic. Um, whether or not Elon Musk is threatening to go to Texas, uh, we know that he refused to close his plant um, when the local public health authorities said that workers were not being protected um, from illness and injury at the workplace. Um, so I think that you know, as we evaluate, we don't exactly know what these trends are going to be. I think uh, Rob listed some potential ones. Is there going to be a move toward remote work and for whom? You know, are we going to see a long-term kind of dislocation of people as a result of what we've all been through in this past year? Um, I think some of those questions remain unanswered, but I would urge that we really start with those who have um, suffered most over the past year and how we reconcile California being kind of a leading progressive state and yet um, the concentration of wealth and the concentration of suffering and poverty. Thanks, Lenny. So um, I think we need, as we're discussing this issue to distinguish between what are cyclical issues and particularly cyclical issues that have been uh, more pronounced because of the nature of this virus-induced recession. We've clearly had a, a K-shaped uh, recession where the top is doing well and, and the middle and below are not. Um, and, and then also, what are things that we do not yet know but are going to be important going forward? One we do know is there's over a million jobs lost in California between tourism industries restaurants and hospitality and the creative economy between entertainment and concerts and plays and those sorts of things, those will almost all come back. They may not be the same restaurants, but people still want to visit California. They're, if anything, post-pandemic, going to be going stir crazy, get out, eat, enjoy the entertainment and visit the beauty that is California. Those are not necessarily great paying jobs, however. The second question that we do not know the answer to is the one that Rob mentioned is what will the impact of remote work have on California? How much of that was uh, induced by the pandemic and will go back to the way it was before? How much will be permanent shifts and how, where, how and where people work? That's a really important question and how California responds to that to ensure that we get the benefit of that so that we don't have to have everybody crowding into urban centers, but can have the opportunity to work from where people live. And it may create a really interesting set of opportunities for Central California or for the Inland Empire, where we don't have to crowd people into freeways to get to opportunities, but they can live and work in their more local communities. I think that's an important question. Um, the second important question is how does California retain its dynamism, continue to create new enterprises, both those that can grow and create substantial jobs and those that are mom and pops that have been hurt tremendously by this recession? And how do we ensure that they, as they expand, they expand in California? Those are important questions. I'm, I'm not particularly concerned about headquarters moves. They get a lot of press and they are meaningless in terms of the absolute employment numbers. The real question is much more around expansion and new business creation. And I, I have a hard time keeping up with it. I look at it every week or so. There are now 139 pre-IPO California companies worth more than a billion dollars. There are more California-based unicorns than the entire rest of the United States combined. There are more in the city, 10 times more in the city of San Francisco than in Texas or Miami. So we're just, it's, we have to remember and place these things in context when having a conversation about employment in California. Thanks. Um, Evan, I was wondering to answer that question, but also kind to, uh, if you could refer to the, I guess, the recent report that California Policy Lab just released, I guess today, um, kind of looking at some of these issues, both seemingly on a statewide, but particularly in San Francisco uh, lens. So if you could speak to both of those. Yeah, sure thing. Uh, thanks for having me on, Erica, and, yeah. and Capital Weekly. Um, yeah, happy to sort of bring the empirical um, lens to this. We, we at California Policy Lab have been working on a project that um, tracks mobility using a data set of, of credit information. So this is the information that sort of credit card companies or other lenders report up to the nationwide credit bureaus. And we're able to see on a quarterly basis um, the moves for everybody who has a credit record within California. Um, and what we see is, first of all, that the sort of Cal exodus that people have been saying is happening isn't necessarily 
showing up in our data. So we aren't seeing a huge um, number of people leaving the state in mass. Okay, so that's the first thing. Uh, we are seeing a slight decline in people coming into the state. And I think that's an important trend to keep watching because there's always going to be people moving in and out of the state. We've seen exits trend upward over many years, um, not because of the pandemic, just a, a, a long trend. As long as entrances keep up with that, um, we, we aren't going to um, experience much of a problem. However, there is a real sort of tale of two cities going on here. So in the Bay Area and in San Francisco particularly, we are seeing a lot of people um, leave the city and leave the Bay Area. What's interesting is most of those people relocate to other places within the state right now. So there's uh, a lot of people who are leaving San Francisco relocating other uh, areas in the Bay Area. And then we are seeing um, some people move up to some of the counties in the Sierra Nevadas. Not tremendously, uh, not more than are moving into the Bay Area counties, but for the receiving counties, they're seeing big increases in people coming from the Bay Area. Um, the other thing we tracked in this research is whether there's going to be any sort of tax revenue impacts. So we tried to see whether moves out of the state are higher for uh, wealthier areas of the state, um, both maybe because of the pandemic and because of some of the things you mentioned at the top um, in terms of uh, higher taxes or other things that uh, folks have been sort of very vocal about complaining about and saying they're leaving the state. But is that really showing up in the data? And what we're seeing is that although wealthy areas always move out of the state at a slightly higher rate than other areas in the state, uh, we're seeing those trend lines remain pretty parallel right now. So we're not seeing a big discrepancy in wealthy areas. Um, now, of course, we'll have to keep watching this. I think, you know, the end of the pandemic will likely um, see some big shifts in terms of what happens. As the other panelists mentioned, some of that might have to do with what happens with remote work. Um, I would also highlight another big factor, I think, that's a much more long-term factor, which is around wildfires. Uh, those of us who've been experiencing that in the state know that it, it is uh, not going anywhere. And we've seen terrible years, you know, record-breaking years, year after year over the past five years. And um, the effects of wildfires and of smoke um, could actually be really uh, 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 impactful for uh, the sort of livability of the state and, and, and people staying in it over time. The other thing I wanted to mention is uh, we've been doing some research uh, looking at um, both the unemployment records and uh, 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 data that looks at business uh, sort of that for workers, whether they're getting cuts in hours versus cuts in layoffs versus entire businesses shutting down. And we've been following that for some time since the pandemic began. And really back in September, I want to say, we saw a plateau in terms of the recovery. Um, uh, that like everything that was going to come back by that point really did come back. And uh, that really plateaued all the way through the winter. And what we're seeing is, at least on the business side, there is, there, the past few weeks have seen a little bit of an uptick in terms of business activity and, and people getting hired back. So that'll be an interesting thing to watch as more people get vaccinated, as case rates fall. Um, but, uh, you know, I think some of the longer term, as, as Lenny points out, like some of the longer term uh, trends here are the ones you really want to watch in terms of what's going to happen to the business climate in the state. Thank you. And, you know, actually to piggyback on that, and this is for everyone, I want to talk about the, the telecommuting aspect of this. You know, we, you know, for the most part, so much of the telecommuting has happened in, you know, higher wage workers, particularly in tech. How, how big of a, I would say maybe threat is probably not the right word, but how big of an impact could that make on the state's tax base? And what are ways that we can, I think maybe it was Lenny or maybe it was Rob that said about incentivizing people to kind of stay in the state and work. I mean, some of the, the research Evan that you just cited shows people are still staying within California, but what does that look like when we have a workforce that's increasingly not in office space? but is you know, spread throughout the state, at least, and potentially the country. And that could be for anybody. I think it's a, a very important issue, less about starting from a question around its impact on California's tax revenue than it does on where people are and all the uh, where they live and where they work. That has uh, important implications if the moves that have happened during the pandemic are even uh, partially retained. So 
there's wide range of estimates of how much of work that has been remote will stay remote. But the most uh, respected work I've seen says that it will be two to three times at least what it was before the pandemic. And that's a substantial number of people who are going to work in different places than they did before. They may not move. In fact, the largest concentration of people who moved from San Francisco all stayed in the Bay Area. There were more people that moved according, this is different data, Evan, from the U.S. Postal Service. There are more people that moved from San Francisco to Marin than from all of the Bay Area out of state. And I don't think of Marin as a low cost, low tax, uh, regulatory constraint, uh, regulatory friendly place. People are moving because that's where they can they can work and live. That's important, especially if there's an opportunity to not have everybody packed into housing constrained places on the coast. And this will not happen without some intentionality. California really needs to continue to focus on having it be a very attractive place to build high quality jobs in places other than the, the Bay Area and uh, downtown west side of Los Angeles and San Diego. It's a really important opportunity for the Central Valley and the Inland Empire if we have the right kind of focus on ensuring that the people that are, are growing up there, graduating from the high quality public universities at Fresno and Bakersfield and in uh, Turlock and Riverside uh, who want to stay there can stay there and still have access to high quality jobs um, regardless of where they are. I think that's a really interesting opportunity for the state. And Erica, if I could add to that, uh, very well said, as always, by Lenny. But I, I have to tell you from you know my members' perspectives, this is actually one of the most exciting things to come out of you know, the, uh, the unfortunate challenges that we've been confronted with, you know, as a society with the pandemic. Because what's happened is, you know, business has quickly mobilized to figure it out, right? That's part, everybody's trying to figure it out. But they now understand, and I believe there's going to be a paradigm shift that obviously work can be done differently. And it doesn't have to be specifically everybody in the workplace every day to be productive and, and be able to meet, you know, the, the goals of whatever endeavor you're engaged in. And most importantly, you know, that there's, there's concomitant benefits here for this, not just to employers or employees, but to, let's say, the environment. With telecommuting, we can, we've provided this to the administration and legislature. We actually gave them a, a, a plan from the roundtable and other major organizations last fall to show and document with proper uh, policy changes the benefits of what could be done to incentivize all this, but most importantly, to be able to tie it to environmental benefits like greenhouse gas reduction. If we, we believe we can keep at least 20% of the cars off the road in the future as we recover to be able to uh, incentivize telework companies are accepting that. And with that reduction in car traffic, that's literally the greatest benefit in greenhouse gas reduction above any current policy that we have to achieve our long-term climate change goals. So there's huge opportunities here to connect the dots on all these different policies that California you know, is underway on uh, if we, again, adapt appropriately and try and incentivize that for the future. And for all of us, you know, we're excited about that. We see great potential here. Let me, let me add one thing that I think people should be thinking about, which is I don't know that a lot of companies will necessarily go fully remote. And if you go partial remote, you gotta be close by. And so we might see a lot more people living, again, like who used to live in San Francisco, living in close by areas like the counties that they just moved to, um, like we've been talking about, but uh, not necessarily moving out of state. And I think that that brings up a, an opportunity because what we're seeing in San Francisco is prices are going down, right? Actually the cost of living is getting back to, I mean, it's not anywhere near where it needs to be. It's not anywhere near normal. Working class families cannot afford to live in San Francisco, but it's much better than it was, uh, you know, this time last year. And um, what that means is uh, that if, if people end up moving out of these very high cost areas into some other parts of California, 
it could actually bring some of the livability back to the California cost of living. So that's, and, and I honestly, I think that might've happened anyways, as autonomous cars got to be more of a thing. I realize that's some years off now, but I think as people, as the sort of costs of commuting go down, you're going to have people moving out of cities a little bit more. So I think, again, looking at the long-term trends here, that could be a good thing for California, that there's a little fewer people sort of in those concentrated areas. Just to um, add a couple of thoughts on the whole issue of telework, I think um, one less positive trend that we have seen along with this increase in telework is increased employer surveillance of workers throughout their day, um, that because uh, they, they can't watch them in the workplace, they're installing software that starts to determine productive time versus non-productive time and penalize them for, um, you know, the ways that they're spending their time throughout the day, uh, which I find an interesting trend because we've also been looking at um, conditions in, for example, Amazon warehouses where workers are monitored at all times and everything's around the speed um, and meeting production standards. And to some extent, we see a little bit of like exporting those conditions from a more a place you would more expect to find them like a warehouse to um, workers who are working from home. And while some of those workers are, you know, high tech workers, uh, highly paid workers, there are workers working from home who do things like call center customer service and are required to answer a certain number of calls per day and are recorded at all times. And so I just want to raise the caution that um, for some of us, probably working at home is, um, you know, can be enjoyable, can be a benefit, can reduce our commutes. There are also workers who the working from home experience is not um, one of uh, freedom or creativity or independence. It's one of increased um, monitoring. And so I think that's an issue that we'll have to consider as we, as we wait to see um, how anxious we all are to be back in person together again, once that's possible. Thanks. Erica, can I add, can oh, I add one yeah, more thing to that too? Um, one of the other challenges that anyone who is working at home and has children knows is that this isn't all enjoyment and ease. So as the uh, California Future of Work Commission highlighted in its report released earlier this week, it is really important that we're thinking about the, the uh, longer term effects of what has been uh, pushed forward through the pandemic, particularly on remote work, to have us rethink the social contract that we're operating under. It uh, Unfortunately, as in this recession, more so than even in the past, but it has clearly been the case, much of the United States' um, social safety net is women, and that's not appropriate. And so ensuring that people are able to, if they want to, to be able to work remotely, but also be able to have the time and resource to have kind of make the care economy work, to be able to ensure that their children are are appropriately able to go to schools. Those things are all very difficult to do in this environment, and we shouldn't understate the burden that it's placed, particularly on, on working moms. No, for sure. Thank you for that. Um, I wanted to ask kind of a follow-up to a number of things you guys mentioned, but one of them had to do with housing prices. Um, so this idea that people are moving but not moving very far, and the potential that, at least for now, people are going to do some sort of flex work for the most part. Um, that does doesn't necessarily, I mean, in San Francisco, yes, that's the, the, the rental prices have come down, but for among the poorest folks, it hasn't come down all that much. So what does that look like in terms of livability for California that, and how can we incentivize ways to change that when it seems that housing prices are coming down or potentially could come down for the highest wage workers, but for the folks at the, the bottom of the economic scale, they're not, they're kind of in the same boat. And in some ways they're in worst boat because they're essential workers and are being forced to go out of their homes and potentially getting sick and dying. So I don't know who wants to tackle that one first. Caitlin, you might want to try. Yeah, thank you, Erica, because that reminded me of the really important point Lenny made to the last question that I meant to follow up on, which is the need for high quality jobs in all kinds of communities across the state. And I think and um, there has been a lot of focus on the cost of housing and we understand like clearly uh, it's too expensive to live in California. Um, but the other part of that is we don't have 
uh, the the kinds of jobs that would um, that allow people to to sustain and and to provide for their families. And so, I think that um, an important piece of solving our housing crisis is about how do we direct tax dollars not only to push for housing for um, lower and middle income families, which I think is really important, but also how do we make sure that our tax dollars are rewarding and incentivizing businesses that pay a living wage, um, that allow workers to unionize, that provide social safety net benefits um, that many employers don't provide anymore. And so I think that, you know, there are two pieces of the same puzzle. Uh, not being able to afford housing here is, is a factor of the housing cost, but it's also a factor of your wages. And as we build an economy, hopefully, I think following up on the governor's uh, commission um, on the future of work, one of the key findings was we have too many low wage jobs and we have to figure out ways to improve job quality. And I think that's an integral part of solving the housing crisis. It, it clearly is. We, the, it is a housing crisis. There was one before the pandemic. There's one now. There will be one as we return. Uh, we need to ensure that people can earn a, a robust enough living to be able to afford to live in California, but we can't do that at the how much they cost today and how little housing we're producing. The real issue here is that we are not building enough housing, and in particular, we're not building enough housing that people can afford. Uh, we need a dramatic increase in housing production. I think the pandemic and the move to remote work will shift where that is in California rather than reduce the overall need. It may mean that we uh, need as much housing in other places outside of the, the central business districts and core urban areas as we, as we uh, might have projected, but we're still going to need a lot more housing. And until we solve that problem, um, we're going to be chasing our tail a little bit on this. And it actually is the primary reason why people leave the state of California, because they can't afford to live here. And that is fundamentally about housing costs. And, and the housing piece, to, to Lenny's point as well, it is, is an inequality piece, because if people can't aspire to be able to build long-term wealth creation by having a job here, but having a home, that home being the key to longer term wealth creation for their kids, for themselves at retirement, their kids' educations, then people are moving because of that, it's singularly, especially when California, as you look at, we've come out of the, you know, the previous recession in 2009, where we've clearly documented we had essentially a two-tier economy. We had low or low-wage job growth, we had high-wage job growth, but the middle class job growth has been a challenge. And that middle wage job growth has been, you know, stymied by the housing costs and, and a large part of the housing costs still you can link back to the changes in some of the policies in the state as to why they continue to go up in terms of cost. And then, uh, you know, as you said, uh, when you have we literally, you know, are going backwards on housing starts, not going forward. So the supply gets constrained. And that then increases the cost. So we really have, you know, the governor identified this at the beginning, but we still have now a fundamental pivot point here about the opportunity for being able to create that middle-class housing. We need affordable housing. Uh, there's no question. And, and, you know, some of that's in the works, but we need more, but we need middle-class housing for people to want to stay here. Uh, and that's a key thing that needs to now get addressed moving forward. I'm sorry, can I say one more thing on housing? It just made me also think uh, the LA Times has done really incredible reporting about the spread of COVID, particularly in Los Angeles. And I think the housing um, issue there that we have seen of multiple families living in overcrowded apartments and how that made it impossible uh, to quarantine and to keep your family safe. I think that's a really important thing that not get lost in the housing debate. So yes, to all of these like multi-factored solutions, but also we need greater tenant protections. We need to make sure that low wage family, you know, working class families are able to live in safe conditions um, and able to afford, you know, apartments that are, um, you know, where they can protect their families and stay safe in situations like the one that we've been facing. And I just think those, those kinds of housing problems often kind of fall off in the discussion of, of, 
uh, housing in California. And it's really important to think about tenant protections and access to affordable housing for low wage workers. Absolutely. Um, I kind of wanted to, to piggyback on some of the things you said as well um, in terms of policies and, and, and public policies we can be pushing to kind of achieve some of these. And also, Rob, I know you mentioned some of your, you know, some of the, the businesses are very excited about the potential and the opportunities to expand elsewhere. And, and in the governor's future of work report, there was definitely a talk of the social compact, not just with the public and government, but also private business. You know, some of the problems we've had in coastal California have been, you know, having huge employment centers, but out of housing, which is driven these housing costs. Is, are there ways or policies that we should be pushing to not replicate those similar things, whether it's in the Central Valley or, you know, in the far North state or other places where people are moving? So, I mean, there's been tremendous, you know, I think starting work, Lenny helped get this started, uh, California Forward, the governor, I mean, the whole region's rising and trying to focus on how we create momentum and incentives to be able to create employment centers and opportunities for people to move into these other regions away from the coast. As we said, it's two different Californians right, of what we see right now, you get 60 miles from the coast, it's completely different. Uh, so how do we start to link those things together? And I know Lenny can, uh, can address this as well, but um, we, we have to, I think at this point, utilize what we have in front of us to be able to start to build that kind of momentum. There's, you know, there's been some good planning, but we're, we're not seeing it quite yet happen. And again, telework could be a key part of that. Evan's documenting it certainly from the Bay Area. I live in Sacramento area. We're seeing Evan's work happen here. We're seeing people come up here uh, because they specifically said they had an opportunity to not have to go in the Bay Area every day and they can afford a house up here. So there's the practical reality. And I mean, it's been amazing to watch in the last even six months as it continues to build. Now, can we do that in Fresno? Can we do that more to Bakersfield? Can we do that you know, in Southern California and Northern California regions? I, certainly we can, the governor understands that, but we now coming out of this pandemic, can we do it quick? And that's what we're hopeful to see and wanna to contribute towards. Also a, a flip side um, challenge and opportunity with what will be in all likelihood, some excess real estate in central urban districts whether that's office or commercial or uh, even uh, local retail because of things that were uh, exacerbated by the pandemic. Uh, and if that real estate can be repurposed into other uses, which is in the interest of real estate owners, particularly into uh, housing units, that would be very helpful for mm -hmm. effectively using the space for what the need is at the same time that we will have the need to ensure that in places like Fresno, that there are, and Nevada City for that matter, or uh, Riverside, that there is really high quality, fast internet every place. It's impossible to work remotely if you don't have access to um, high quality digital connections. So we need to ensure that that is in place as well. And then finally, I just, I really do think that the, uh, Lessons that corporate America has learned that Rob highlighted in terms of their ability to have a workforce in different places rather than hovering over them in an office is going to open up people's minds to where they locate people. And ultimately, they're looking for high quality people. And there's an enormous pool of talent that's growing up in the fastest growing part of the state east of Highway 5 that creates an opportunity to have corporate expansions happen in those parts of the state that will create high quality jobs where people live. To your point about converting, oh, I'm sorry, Caitlin, you were gonna say something. That's okay, if you wanna follow up on his point and then I'll go back to your original question. No, I was just gonna say, you know, Lenny, your point about converting office space, it's something actually I wrote about recently. And, you know, it seems to me it's gonna take a fundamental rethinking of the way that we use cities and think of cities, particularly dense urban areas. And some of that seems to be kind of a waiting game right now to see how the vaccinations go to see how, you know, how many companies do in, in, indeed go to telework, you know, how, you know, how does, how does that going to shake out and how long do you think that's going to take? Because it does seem like there's a potential really big opportunity to kind of increase our housing stock by using some existing infrastructure. So uh, 
I can start with that and, and others can answer as well. Um, obviously, there's a fair amount of uncertainty about how long until we really have this uh, virus under control, but the trends recently are very positive. The combination of people adhering to uh, non-pharmaceutical interventions and wearing masks and socially distancing, plus the rapid, increasingly rapid rollout of vaccines leads most people to believe that we will be in a position by the fall where people can return to some sense of normalcy and potentially at that point, at least with the companies that I know, they're starting to think in that time frame to what is it that they want to do more fundamentally as opposed to dealing with the near term. Um, it will obviously take much longer for real estate conversions. That's a, you know, a 20 or 30 year investment, not a question about what you do with people um, overnight. But I think we'll start to see um, by the time we get to the fall, the winter next year, we'll have a much cleaner sense of how much of this was temporary shifts in how work is done versus more fundamental ones. I just wanted to go back to your original question, Erica, about what policy interventions are needed to, to um, create the good jobs that we know our state needs. Um, I mean, when I hear the phrase future of work, I always want to say like, there is no set future of work. It's up to us. The things we do will determine what the future of work is. And so I think this is an area where that is possibly more true than anywhere else is like, how do we incentivize good jobs? One easy thing, you know, California is giving out billions of dollars of aid to businesses in the state, which we know, uh, I think Rob mentioned businesses, small businesses in particular have been really hard hit in this pandemic. Even big businesses like hotels have largely closed in this pandemic. So now we're figuring out how do we rebuild our economy and not to uh, borrow the phrase that Biden uses, the build back better. How do we not re repeat the same mistakes um, that, that made us so vulnerable to what we've been through in this past year? As we are reviving industries, as we are trying to rebuild the economy, why not reward businesses that will pay good wages? Why not, um, you know, reward businesses that don't misclassify workers? Why not look at, you know, which businesses are complying with state labor laws and make sure that they are getting uh, rewarded and incentivized for being the good guys? I think there's a huge amount of public money um, that goes out through whether it's tax credits or loans or grants, um, uh, subsidies. How do we attach labor standards so that we are investing in rebuilding the California middle class? Well, I think everyone here agrees we have, you know, a lot of people, a lot of rich and a lot of poor. How do we rebuild the good jobs that help us solve every other problem, you know, are a key factor to solving every other problem and building a more just economy, I feel like we have a lot of opportunity coming out of this pandemic to think about how we do that carefully. Like, we want to bring back the hospitality industry. Let's help them recover, but ask that they bring back those same workers who lost their jobs when the pandemic hit. There's lots of ways to tie our fates together instead of have us end up on opposite sides of the, of the coin in terms of winners and losers. And so I think there's a lot of opportunity for us to think about how to be creative in building back a better economy in California. So Erica, if I can add on to Caitlin's point, because there's not enough work right now going on from a policy discussion in, in that middle, I think to what I just heard Caitlin start to address of where some of that discussion could take place. And so yeah, on, on our side of that discussion is, you know, how do you create balance so that if there's going to be a $15 an hour minimum wage uh, that you, from a policy standpoint, look at how you balance costs in other areas for businesses that will allow them to pay that $15 an hour minimum wage or greater, but yet understand that, you know, that they're not getting cost after cost after cost from a policy perspective, you know, piled on top of them. I, and that's where we believe there's opportunity here, you know, on so many different areas to be able to, in the middle to try and look at how you balance that cost. And we're not saying necessarily it's gonna be subsidies, but it's just when you look at the different uh, mandates that get could put on and add cost to business, especially small business, that's what 
you know, this is a key part of this as we look to the recovery, uh, how you balance that. So I appreciate what Kaylin said, because, you know, we there's not enough discussion in that middle ground on how we look at at this from an overall perspective. And I would like to see more of that. We certainly uh, think it, it's the it would be the right thing to do as well. No, the um, one of the most important recommendations from my standpoint from the California Future of Work Commission was this issue around ensuring that any government incentive that is paid goes to those who are creating quality jobs. Um, the whether it's it's grants, whether it's tax incentives, or importantly contracts. Um, if the state is clear that, that that those are going to be recognized and rewarded, I think it can make a big difference. We were starting to do that pre-pandemic between what the California competes criteria were and trying to align them. So we have a common definition of that. It can make a big difference. California moved the needle on electric vehicles for the world by articulating that it was going to use its purchasing power to do that. Um, it's This is a tricky thing to get right, but I agree with Rob. This is a conversation that really getting specific about how do we do that in a way that incents and recognizes good corporate behavior is a real lever for a state that's as big as California and a government that spends as much as it does. Well, and this is where details would matter in that discussion as well, Erica, right? So yeah. that's, um, you know, it's, it's it would take time. Uh, but, you know, again, this is part of, I think, the big picture moving forward uh, and, and whether we can, you know, how we find some of that middle ground and, and what does that look like? And then again, how to create that balance for cost. Because again, one of the biggest challenges for the for business, particularly longer term and scaling here and everything else is the regulatory environment, which boils down to costs mm-hmm. uh, in many respects. And you see, you know, businesses want to do the right thing. Look what they've done for mitigations in the pandemic. I mean, they have, you know, innovated quickly to be able to pay what they need to pay to be able to mitigate and protect their employees and protect, you know, the public. Um, so that's if if we can get that kind of discussion come out of that would be a great benefit. Okay. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna move to some questions from the audience because um, we have about 13 minutes left or so. Um, the first question I think Evan, you can probably address this one, but the uh, empty Salesforce tower um, and Transbay Center. Um, how long do you think that'll stay a ghost town, and what are the effects of that? Yeah, I'm not sure I can address that one. I mean, I think that's anyone's guess. Um, it, there, there's so many post-pandemic question marks that I think it's really hard to hard to judge. And I do think that San Francisco is experiencing something unique that the rest of the state isn't seeing. But uh, just how much, like, I think there's been a lot of high-profile talk of, of San Francisco-based companies moving or going permanently remote or things like that. But I haven't seen something that looks like a tipping point yet. And so um, I, I don't I don't know that, uh, you know, big tech is going to be leaving California writ large anytime soon. Um, as it pertains to the Salesforce Tower and the Transbase Center, I, I couldn't tell you, uh, maybe other panelists know more about uh, exactly what those um, commercial real estate markets will do. Um, you know, I think in terms of the effects, uh, you know, Again, other panelists may know more, but my, my sense is that uh, San Francisco is a resilient place. It's been an attractive place to work and to live and to uh, build businesses for quite some time. And I'm not really seeing anything that is going to change that over the long term. I think that a lot of people may have sort of skipped town over the pandemic and are coming back. Um, I think people who are moving aren't moving that far. Um, so... I think that the the problems that that California came into this crisis with are going to be very similar to the ones they leave this crisis with. Uh, the inequality that Caitlin mentioned, the housing problems that all the panelists mentioned, um, and I think that as we think about how to you know recover, it would make sense to try and address those problems at the same time. As, as you look at downtown San Francisco. I know that's a specific circumstance, but we also need to remember that there are very few, if any, college students there now there's almost no tourism particularly from out of the area out of the out of uh, the state international travel there are no business conventions there's been relatively limited supply of hospitality the symphony the ballet nothing's open you know when those things start to come back again it's still a very attractive place so 
I think it will look different, but I wouldn't count it out yet. Um, you know, there, there's already um, uh, substantial moves in the tourism industry of uh, those with vaccinations making travel reservations for later this year. Um, you know, all those bucket list things, all the things you couldn't do to see your kids, your grandparents, um, I think we'll start to see some of that coming back. And if California is smart, we should be a huge beneficiary of that. And, and Eric, go ahead, Emmett. I just, sorry, one other thing I forgot to mention that the report we put out this morning doesn't cover, which is international migration. Um, and um, with the Trump administration uh, exiting the scene and Biden on the scene, uh, tra traditionally or historically, the state has seen a tremendous amount of international migration that many ways has sort of kept the state population what it is. I think if we see that coming back post pandemic and post Trump, I think that's gonna make a big difference for the state um, and, and to speak to some of the same trends that, that Lenny mentioned. Sorry, Rob, go ahead. No, no, thank you. That's, that's a great point. And just to, to add on, I wanted to actually take the question past the San Francisco answer and talk about statewide for just a second from what we see, because we deal and work closely with, you know, our colleagues throughout commercial properties, California business properties, association, et cetera. And so if you ask me right now, kind of where we see or hear where companies are in terms of returning to their workplaces as a whole, uh, from a commercial property standpoint, I would say the estimate right now from what we get is somewhere 15 to 20% people are back in their offices. But what they're hearing is that there will be a return. Obviously, vaccinations are key, but they're looking ahead to the fall. So I think kind of like schools, uh, a greater return, you know, but still acknowledging, you know, a telework component or increased telework component, but the, they're targeting August, September for a greater return. Got it. Uh, another uh, person wanted to know, uh, just wanted to hear some sort of discussion about whether telecommuting slash teleworking has an effect on innovation. Um, I'm sure you're all aware that a number of tech companies are doing trying to do eventually sort of a flex time where people do sp still spend some time with their coworkers and they're not completely remote. Do you think that uh, telework will affect innovation, particularly for California um, going forward? And do you think companies will kind of stick to that flex model where you have a mix of remote work and in-person? I think it remains to be seen. So we're all gonna be speculating on this, but um, I think we're more likely to see uh, uh, hybrid structures where people are partly remote and partly in person in, in part to deal with the issue around innovation and, you know, um, happenstance interactions that are really crucial to innovation, but also because there's an important element of social um, connection that comes from people seeing each other and being in person. There's an important element of maintaining and building a corporate culture. It's hard to mentor completely remotely. Um, I was in a global firm before I was in government. And we operated remotely because we were on client sites all the time, but we had Fridays in the office and those Fridays were used for that purpose. They were used for um, social interaction, training, cultural connection, et cetera. And I think that's important. You can't, I mean, listen, for all of us who are on Zoom as we are now, this is great, but I still, I look forward to having a beer with Rob, not just <laughs> <laughs> and our colleagues here on this call, you know, to, to Lenny's point, collaboration and innovation go hand in hand. I think most people recognize that employers recognize that the question is just to what degree, how much. And so I, I agree with everything you just said, they're going to be figuring it out, but there has to be a return and it's all part of that. I think there's been more innovation from what we hear statewide, uh, or a surprising amount of innovation through the remote work than maybe a lot of people thought possible. Uh, so that, that's been kind of an interesting feedback for us. Uh, and that is, that's why, again, we believe that could be a paradigm shift, that if, if that innovation can occur in a telework environment, that that, again, helps spur all that. Uh, so, but it remains to be seen, as Lenny said. Sorry, to keep, can I just add one more thing? I think this is going to vary by sector too. So there are some places mm -hmm. where there's some really potentially interesting benefits from thinking differently about how you provide the service, healthcare being one of them. Um, I, I had uh, 
a, a pretty severe uh, health issue earlier this year. And I literally have never seen my doctor in person. It's all remote. And that potential to extend that way, I think there's some interesting innovation potentials in education, particularly in higher education that can create access opportunities to people who may not have been able to uh, physically be co-located all the time. And importantly, people who want to earn and learn at the same time. There's just a lot of innovation there. And California should be and will be one of the places where that's not only created, but but applied in a way that could be pretty interesting. I was going to say something similar. I, I think that I think that problems often cause innovation, right? I think that necessity is the, the mother of invention and and regulations have I've seen cause a lot of uh, innovation, right? I've seen, you know, the, the, the sort of big social issues cause innovation. I think that having people remote and in different environments, like living in different places will cause them to notice different things and cause them to potentially innovate in that way. So I think, you know, I, I've read some of the, some academic work on what causes innovation, but I don't, I don't know that we really have cracked that nut. And I think uh, there's just as much reason for me to believe that there's innovation to be had in the remote world as there is for having people on site. I think I'm less worried about innovation and more worried about um, culture. I mean, I think that, I think that work culture suffers tremendously from having people remote. Um, and uh, I think that that's a different productivity issue than the innovation piece that, that your question was, was aimed at. So it's my two cents. All right. So we only have a couple minutes left and I'm actually going to take this for my question that I have a question about. So some of you have probably seen that a uh, former mayor, um, Stockton mayor, Michael Tubbs released his report this week on guaranteed basic income. And the results of it showed that basically there was a, after giving people 500 bucks for basically the better part of a year, there was a, and a notable increase in uh, mental health, uh, people were able to work more and it was overall beneficial. Um, as we're talking about coming out of the pandemic and particularly for the, the, the half of California folks who are not higher wage, who don't have the freedom to move about, should we be seriously considering a, a guaranteed income? And if so, you know, for, you know, how would we go about stipulating, like what part of the population would we look at? How would we go about implementing that? And I know that's a lot to ask in three minutes, but um, if anybody has any insight, I'd love to hear it. Well, I would start by saying like whenever they do that research on universal basic income and they're like, wow, people do better with money. We, the labor movement are like, hello, what do you think we've been fighting for for a hundred years? Yes, people do better with money. Um, I think that some in our movement are nervous that this will become a way to avoid doing the hard work of developing high quality jobs and that um, it could also potentially be used um, to erode the existing safety net. So I think that, you know, certainly in a pandemic, like the, the kind of emergency checks and just getting money to people because so many of our safety nets have failed is an appealing idea. And when, you know, I support give money to people just so they can survive through this. I personally though think that like, we need to be focused more on um, creating quality jobs uh, and making strengthening our safety net, making sure that workers can access unemployment insurance, making sure companies are paying into the system to keep it healthy. Like, I think those should be our priorities and something like a basic income, I, I view more as potentially a component of a safety net where the others fail, but I don't want us to give up trying on the idea that every worker deserves um, a dignified uh, living that they earn, that they feel good about, that gives them meaning in life. And if that doesn't work, give them money anyway, but let's try to make jobs that transform people's lives. All right, we got one minute. Who wants to take this? <laughs> then we're going to be something real quickly. I think there's a lot of opportunity to learn and experiment with things like was done in Stockton. I wouldn't jump to the conclusion that the answer is universal basic income for everyone. I am right. much more interested in how do we create quality jobs. And I'm interested in things like California's done some of this and there's a lot more potential at the federal level. How do we extend the earned income tax credit to a much broader array of opportunities? So why is it that 
are you telling me that caring for children and caring for your elders, whether you're being paid or not, is not work? If you've done that, it, you know that's work. Um, I think you could be should be eligible for the earned income tax credit if you're doing that based on what imputed wages are. That to me would uh, have more of a opportunity to help people who need it the most rather than giving me $500 more a month in universal basic income. It's a much better policy, Erica, much better. And it, it's critical to the value of, you know, of who we are as, as a society to be able to incentivize work, but we have to have work. We don't support UBI as an organization, the business community. I have not yet outside of a few tech companies seen support it. Uh, there, there's many, many other policies that we could do that will be much more beneficial for us long-term Thanks. than that. Thank you. I hate to cut you off, but we are at 1 p.m. and we will wrap up on time. So thank you all for participating and uh, look forward to the next session. Thank, thank you. you. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Erica. Thank you so much to all of our panelists and especially to Erica for uh, moderating. The Capital this. Weekly Podcast yeah. is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week. The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations.